You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. Bruton Parish Church is one of Colonial Williamsburg's most identifiable landmarks, an anchor in the center of Duke of Gloucester Street, which is the town's main drag. But when you look at the face of the old church, you might be seeing less of colonial history and more of the history of the men who have undertaken its restoration. Carl Lounsbury is an architectural historian, and he joins us today to talk about the book he wrote about Bruton Parish Church called Bruton Parish Church, an Architectural History. Carl, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, before we get started talking about Bruton Parish Church specifically, I wanted to think for a minute about churches in general. It, it seemed to me in reading the book that the church as a building is a special type of architectural landmark because of the way it gets used in society. It's something that generation after generation uses. Well, churches like houses change with each generation. New fashions come in, new ways of conducting services, uh, new ideas about the uh, form and finish of a church. These things uh, undergo the same sort of fashions as domestic architecture. There are architectural attributes that you associate with public buildings, either uh, civic buildings like courthouses, uh, as well as uh, ecclesiastical structures like churches. Uh, they have certain features that you don't see in domestic architecture in this area, like uh, what we call compass head, or what they called compass-headed windows, or round or arched windows. You don't see them in domestic architecture, and you see it in civic architecture. And of course, the windows at Bruton are uh, compass-headed. They're also enlarged in scale. They're about five feet across and 14 feet high. So you look at the building, you think it's a one-story building, but in fact the walls are two stories in height and they just sort of scale up the windows to make them larger. Of course, the other features that you see on that church is the tower and steeple, which sort of gives it away today as a, um, as a church, but in fact was a very late in coming to Bruton Church. It wasn't built until 1769 through 71, so it, was, um, it wasn't there for the first uh, 70 years of its existence. So the church that we see today is not the first church? Well, it is the second parish church that was built. Um, the first one was built in the early 1680s, and it lasted for about 30 years, and it was systematically pulled down when the new church opened its doors in 1716. Uh, and that 1716 church is what we see to, today, although it has changed considerably since that time. It, it expanded uh, once in the 1750s when the town grew. It expanded to the east by 25 feet, and then the tower was put on in the 1760s as well. Um, it also has been changed on the inside any number of times. We know a bit about what the exterior of the church looked like in those early days as well. It was made of brick, but it was every possible permutation of brick, every possible finish of brick. Well, uh, the church was built at a time uh, of a changing aesthetic in um, Virginia brickwork and Virginia architecture. It was moving away from a more exuberant style of brickwork with the curvilinear gables and um, niches and buttresses that you saw in the first church to what uh, they called a neat and plain style. So they, uh, they really, instead of using 
um, modulation of the wall uh, openings and uh, to create a, a sense of uh, a presence, what they did is they subtly modulated the colors of the bricks to give emphasis around the openings. For example, the arched openings have rub bricks around the sides, slightly different uniform red or color than the field of bricks, and the corners also have these rub bricks. One thing uh, also that has changed is that the church may have had those shaped gables that the first building did. Uh, we know in 1742 that there was an order to take down the gable ornaments, whatever that meant, and redo the gables. And that disappeared. So it may have been looked a lot different than it does today. Um, one last little detail on the outside that's different today than it was in the 18th century is that the door openings on the north and south wing walls uh, had flat heads instead of arched heads, and those were changed in 1907 um, when the architect decided that that's what they should look like. I don't think there was any physical evidence for them, but they put them in there. Let's catch up to that moment mm -hmm. in time in 1907. Right. The church sees a lot of wear. It goes through two wars, uh, and it changes a lot along with Williamsburg society. And it got a bit dilapidated. Uh, and then in 1907, the first restoration of the church, um, the, it, it undergoes its, its first restoration. And this is the idea that I think is interesting. We, we come back to it a lot um, on this program, but it, it fascinates me that um, a lot of times we undertake these restorations thinking that we're keeping to the period and we have the the most noble instincts in mind that we're going to honor its, its, the original intent and, and the um, aesthetic of the creation of it. But we can't help but give those restorations a little bit of the accent of our own time. Absolutely. Well, the, the building changed about every 20 years in the 18th century. And we now think of it as a timeless 18th century period piece, but in fact, it never reached its present, uh, it didn't reach its present um, form until the 17, late 1760s, early 1770s. And so there's this sort of high watermark in that decade of the early 1770s when there were lots of people here, it was crowded, and this was the sort of the state church of Virginia. But after that time, with the removal of government to Richmond, a lot of people left, the government left, and uh, the support of the provincial government, or in this case the state government, disappeared. The same thing happened when the church was disestablished in the 1780s. So the Episcopal Church, as it now was known, had to support itself instead of the ability to tax everyone who lived in the parish. Uh, so Bruton was able to hang on, but just barely in, 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 in this respect. But eventually, they, they made compromises. They divided the building into Sunday school and, and sanctuary. But eventually, they, they sort of gathered steam. They became increasingly wealthy, and, and the population grew in the late 19th century so that they were able to make repairs. By this time, uh, the church was over 150 years old. The brickwork was crumbling in places, and they, they tried to keep it uh, in, uh, in control. But you can see still that they weren't able to make major changes because they kept 
um, their, their, their purse was so small. Eventually, by the late 19th century, there's this wave of nostalgia for the colonial period. And by the beginning of the 20th century, there was this idea that the church should be restored to this notion of this 18th century uh, grandeur that it once had. And they had to raise money for it. And the way to do that before there were foundations and and the like is that uh, ministers went up north and uh, asked rich people for money. I mean, instead of having the the Carnegie Foundation or the Rockefeller Foundation, you simply asked the individual themselves. Uh, And that's what William Goodwin, who was the minister starting in 1903, was charged to do. And he went up and asked for money. But what, what really pulled it together was hiring an architect. And uh, this architect pulled, put together some plans, and with, along with Dr. Goodwin, they um, created a, what they thought uh, was the 18th century interior. But what, in fact, as you mentioned, was that their, it was their idealized view of the 18th century. What are some of the other um, restoration um, elements that were included at that point that are more a reflection of the turn of the century values, 19th century values, than 18th century values? They had an idealized view of the 18th century. They thought everyone worshipped there. In fact, you know, there were some very um, pious people at the time, and there were people who were less religious, And but the way it was kind of cast, it... It seemed like you know everyone was religious, and that was not the case. Um, there was also you know an idea that much of the fittings um, were of the best materials. I, I recall reading in, in the in the letters between Doctor Goodwin and um, some advisors, and he wanted mahogany pews, thinking that because the um, the members of the gentry were worshiping there. They would have had mahogany, whereas no no church in Virginia had any anything of such extravagance. Um, so you you do see an idealized view of the 18th century that gets transformed by this design aesthetic of what we call colonial revivalism, to make everything symmetrical, to make everything resolved proportional as well as symmetrical, whereas uh, in the 18th century that building kind of grew higgly-piggly. And so they, they, they had this kind of idea that the, the church should uh, to look uh, like it was part of one piece of architectural design when in fact it, it just grew. That 1907 restoration with W.A.R. Goodwin as uh, minister and J. Stuart Barney as architect doesn't survive very long. Goodwin tries to go back and have a do-over with the architect firm of Perry Shaw and Hepburn later in the in the restoration. What does he redo when he goes back and looks at it again? Well, Barney uh, is an interesting character. His ideas uh, were sort of a, a little more on the extravagant side. And some some of the detailing that he did uh, were, as I mentioned, was over the top, uh, just more elaborate than anything we would see in an 18th century church, from known from both documents and from surviving uh, material. Um, and eventually, um, Dr. Goodwin, who then led the restoration of, of uh, Williamsburg with uh, the Rockefeller um, restoration project, 
realized that what he had done 30 years earlier was part of a more idealized view of the past. And, re- and I think he gradually understood, and he also saw how precise and, and, and conscientious the architects were of the restoration. They, they would go to a great deal of detail to f- tease out the kind of information that the fabric of the building would reveal looking at documents, the kind of things that Varney did not do in 1905-1907. So he understood by that time that mahogany pews would have been pure fantasy. And once they got into the church and stripped out the plaster on the inside, basically the entire interior was stripped away uh, and the ground was taken up, and they realized how uh, fragile the brickwork was. So there was a lot of of repairs that were necessary that you don't see in the building just to keep the wall standing and that cost a lot of money to to do that kind of work but it, it you know it, it it preserved it by doing that that substantial intervention into um, into the fabric I feel like Bruton Parish Church is a special building in a lot of ways but it's, it's special in particular because it's still fulfilling its original function it's still a living church it is indeed. It's, it's, it, is an, uh, it is an old church suited for 20th century Episcopal worship. It is not an 18th century church restored to its 18th century uh, uh, configuration. In fact, uh, I, I think if, if the, the Episcopal congregation's predecessors came back from the 18th century and saw this, they wouldn't know what to make of the church. They certainly would recognize uh, the form of the of the Book of Common Prayer, but they would not understand the uh, many of the ceremonies that have been introduced into the Episcopal Church. Most of those being 19th century rather than 18th century, and uh, so that that's a big difference. For example, many people in the 18th century, uh, more than half of them, sat with their backs to the altar or their backs to the pulpit. They just it sat in pews that had three or four sides uh, with benches around three or four sides. It was a church, it was called an auditory church, a church for hearing the word of God being preached. So there are all kinds of compromises, and that, that's the great thing about a living church, is that you know each generation will change it to suit its form of worship, and when that stops, it becomes fossilized, and too many of the surviving churches that I look at uh, up and down the eastern seaboard, the best surviving buildings are often the ones that have no congregation anymore. They've been left high and dry, or the congregation has died died off, and so they're they're just sort of they're great in, as architectural artifacts, but they're not. There's nothing left to them as a living church. Carl, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Do you have a question or suggestion for the show? Leave a comment at podcast.history.org.